Uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. Very happy to be speaking to you from uh, John's Gospel in particular. At the beginning of last year, I, uh, I read a quote from uh, an American author and pastor, John Pavlovitz, and uh, he said this, Conservative white Christians need Jesus, but not the one they're always selling, not the one they love to preach so loudly about, not the one they trumpet from the stage and the platform and on social media. They don't need the walk the aisle, say a prayer and get out of hell kind of Jesus. That Jesus is too easy. The Jesus these Christians need is the Jesus of the Gospels, the one who gets all up in your personal business, the one who turns over tables in the sacred temples of your greed and hypocrisy, the one who demands that you really care about the poor and the hungry around you, enough to give all that you have for their care. They need the homeless, poor, dark-skinned foreigner Jesus who shunned opulence and denounced power and defended the marginalised so that they remember where they came from and where they're supposed to be walking towards in this life. Well, that's fairly aggressive sort of stuff. And when I read that, I, I, I wondered, is this true? Now, he was uh, writing out of an American situation just uh, last year, and of course all the things that um, are happening in America, and perhaps especially with evangelical Christianity and uh, being married to politics and so forth, are a little bit of a concern. And, and maybe that was behind some of what Pavlovitz was saying, I don't know. But uh, whenever somebody writes that, it always it should cause us to think, and, and rather than just be offended, to ask the question, well, is this true? And uh, where is the truth lying in uh, in what he is saying? Have we lost the plot uh, as far as Jesus is concerned? Have we lost our understanding of the real Jesus? It's too easy uh, to have uh, the Jesus of this, that or the other thing and get a little bit lost as to how the New Testament actually uh, proclaims him and uh, and the gospel. So at the beginning of last year, after I read this, I, I thought, well, I need to, I, I want to go back to the gospels. I want to check this out. I want to uh, get back and to rediscover the Jesus of the gospels. And uh, the best place to do that is in the writings of his best friend, uh, John. Uh, John, I think, probably knew him better than anybody else on earth. And, uh, and so to get back and to read John's Gospel. So I spent last year in reflecting and reading and, and reflecting on John's Gospel. And so um, uh, it's, it's a great privilege to uh, come and to talk to you out of John's Gospel, as I was asked to do over the three weeks that I'm here uh, this month and um, uh, today, this morning, coming to the first few verses of chapter 15, uh, the vine and the branches or the true vine. It's a very familiar passage to us, uh, but um, maybe there's some stuff that we need to rediscover or be reminded of in these verses in John chapter 15. Now one of the things that I was reminded of as in going through John's Gospel is how important it is to see everything in context. Uh, how important it is to understand the cultural context of what we're reading uh, because we can't remove something from the culture and pretend like we understand it. How important it is to understand the historical context and what's going on and of course the literary context. You know, Where does this particular passage fit in the broader picture of what uh, this book is saying and, and what John's Gospel is saying. So this wonderful passage about the vine and the branches, uh, 
uh, needs to be seen in a much broader context. And there are two literary contexts that these verses need to be seen in the light of if we're going to truly understand the impact of what Jesus is saying here. And I just, in, before getting into these verses, I want to remind you of these, um, of these contexts. And it starts off, the first one is, is the whole purpose of John's writing. Uh, this particular gospel because he's quite different you know we call the other three gospels the synoptic gospels they're seeing things from the same sort of perspective different within themselves but there's a synopsis about it they're seeing things but John is really different and so we have to understand to understand any of his teaching within the gospel we need to understand the much broader context of what John is doing and he starts his story in John chapter 1 he starts his story uh, not at the birth uh, not even at the conception and not even in the Old Testament links through genealogies and, 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 and fulfilled prophecies. Now those are the places where the other Gospels start, at, at the birth or at the conception or in the Old Testament fulfilled prophecies and, uh, and, and genealogies that connect Jesus back then. But John doesn't start then. Uh, John takes it way back, doesn't he? In John chapter 1, he takes it back before time began. He takes it back to eternity. And he reminds us uh, that, that, that Jesus was pre-existent, that this logos that he, he talks about in John chapter 1, the, the, the word, was, uh, was pre-existent. And, uh, and, and he, he is God. He is the creator God. He is involved in creation. The creation of life and the creation of light is what he says in John chapter 1. And uh, so he starts in eternity before time began. And I think he does this to force us into a position, if we're reading John's gospel, which is a very grounded gospel. It's very grounded. You know, the humanity of Jesus comes through very clearly in the book of John. But that's only in the context of where John starts reminding us that this Jesus who is very grounded, who moved in next door, as we'll see in a moment, um, is the eternal God. He is the creator God. He is God himself. And I think John does this to force us into a position of worship of the creator Christ, uh, the eternal one, the transcendent one, before he tells us that this almighty creator transcendent God uh, moved in next door and that's verse 14 of chapter 1 so he starts out chapter 1 talking about the logos and the eternal Christ comes down to verse 14 who became one of us and 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 I think he's doing this he's putting it in context so we don't lose sight that this one who moved in next door who became one of us is the creator Christ uh, he is the one who is to be worshipped and adored um, and, and then he tells us in John chapter 1 that this, this great almighty God who moved in next door uh, to us, he says he revealed God to us. He is full of grace and full of truth. And in being full of grace and truth, he is revealing God to us. He is revealing what God is really like. And the word that's translated in John chapter 1, the word that's translated revealed, is where we get our English word exegeted from. Now, uh, you being good uh, Brethren Assembly folk 
from, from way back, you'll know what exegesis is all about. You'll certainly know because you've, you've uh, uh, fought against eisegesis. Eisegesis is a very surface understanding of something. Exegesis is a depth understanding of it. Exegesis is to dig into something and to allow the fullness of, of, of the truth of, of whatever we're studying to come out. That's exegesis. And the word that's translated revealed is actually exegeted. And so the, the, the role that Christ had, that God had in moving next door to us, was to exegete God to us. In other words, to show us what God is really like, the exegesis of God. This is what God is really like in his depth, in his essence. This is what God is like. And he reveals that in everyday life in the neighborhood. This is what it would look like if God was living next door, because he is in Jesus. Um, and, and, and John says in chapter 1 that he is full of grace, which is undeserved kindness, and full of truth. And that's not just that he tells the truth instead of lies. The word there means that he's the real deal. He's fair dinkum. This is really and truly what God is actually like. And that's where John starts. So you're getting the picture there. So anything that we read, for instance, this morning in John chapter 15, needs to be in the light that John's purpose is to reveal this great almighty God who is the creator of life and the creator of light became one of us so that we might understand, so that we might know who God, what God is really like. So anything that we read in John's gospel... We need to be reminding ourselves, this is what God's really like. <laughs> this isn't just some philosophy or some made-up theology. This is what God is really like, because that's the purpose of John's, um, John's writing. The second literary context is John chapters 13 to 17. Now, I notice that the series that you're in at the moment is, is studying uh, John chapters 14 to 16, which is great. Um, expanded just a little bit. John chapters 13 to 17 are what I call lessons from the table because uh, uh, in John chapters 13 to 17 we see Jesus around the table uh, that's, that's, that's what he does in those chapters and, and he, he, uh, he, he has uh, communion with them he has the Lord's Supper or whatever we might want to call it um, uh, and he teaches a whole lot of things but it's all in the context of I am going away if you read through John chapters 13 to 17, you will get that reoccurring a few times. Jesus is saying, I am going away. In other words, things are going to be different. Things are going to be different because for the last three years, you've had me with you. And that's been really important as far as the discipleship is concerned. But things are going to be different. I'm going away. This is the last meal that he's having before his, uh, before his crucifixion, before he dies. And the world changes uh, for the disciples, for those who have been uh, following him, because they don't know what to expect. They're they're lost. They they don't know what to do. And Jesus is here preparing them and saying, if you like, you know, his last words before death, if you like, which are are always very important. Um, He's preparing them for what it's going to be like when he goes away. And so anything that we read in John chapter 15 need to be seen in the context of that bigger picture of what he's saying around the table. I'm going away. So this is really important. There's some things that I want to say to you before I leave. So two contexts. One, this is what God is really like 
And this is how it would be lived out if he's living next door to you. And Jesus saying, I'm going away. Things are going to be different. So I really want you to understand this. So we come to this wonderful teaching, verses 1 to 8 in John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. It's been read to us, so we don't need to read it again. Just observing the passage that's there, we see that Jesus teaches about the disciples' relationship with him and how that relationship with him is essential in all things. And to get that message across, uh, he uses a metaphor of a vine, uh, of, of branches on the vine and a gardener. Now, all this is very commonplace. It's a commonplace thing for that particular day and it's a commonplace thing for that uh, particular uh, geographical region. So in sitting around the table with his disciples, teaching on a whole lot of different issues, he pulls in an image that they're very familiar with. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Uh, My father, well, he's the gardener. He is the, the vineyard keeper. And that's what he's talking about. Those, the, the characters in this story, well, he first of all introduces himself into the story. He says, I am the vine. So that's Jesus. He is the vine, uh, deeply rooted into the ground. Uh, and he says, uh, my, my father, the father God, well, he's the keeper of the vines. He is, he is the gardener. And you, well, you're the branches. Believers, people who believe in me, people who are a part of this movement, uh, this Jesus movement, this this discipleship, you're you're the branches. So let's play with that a little bit. Jesus says around the table. Let's let's unwrap that a little bit and what it really means. And he talks about the tasks that each of those uh, characters in the story uh, need to do. He talks about himself and he says, I'm the vine. What, what, what do you think is the role of the vine? He doesn't actually say it here, but how would you describe the role of a vine? Give life. Yeah, yeah. Deeply rooted into the ground. And his role, his job, is to give life to the branches. Uh, he, uh, he, he says, because without me, you can do nothing. So here's the life that is flowing into the branches. You cut off the branch and it's dead. Without me, you can do nothing. Now that's essentially what he's trying to get across to his disciples. Remember the context? Things are going to change. I'm going away. And then he says, and without me, you can do nothing. Well, that's not very comforting to tell you the truth, you know. He says, I'm going away, and without me, you can do nothing. So let's pack up our bags and (laughs) head out of here. Well, no, that actually leads into how important uh, next week and the the next couple of weeks are in teaching on the Holy Spirit and the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, but we won't get into that. But that's what he's saying. I'm going away, but without me, you can do nothing. And then he, uh, he talks about the gardener the keeper and what does he say the role of the gardener is what does he say in those verses sorry 
keep the vine healthy and how's he going to do that what's the word he use to prune and that's the role of a gardener isn't it the story is making sense so far Uh, the vine is there to provide the life and the gardener is there to make sure that everything is trimmed off and 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 uh, the idea is that more uh, fruit will be provided so the vine is there to enable fruit production by the provision of life to the branches the keeper the gardener is there to enable more fruit to be produced by the pruning of the vine keeping the vine healthy and the branches what does he say is the role of the branches You know he doesn't. I was hoping you'd say that. Because everybody does. Bingo. Oh, sorry, not bingo, correct. (laughs) He says in this passage that the role of the branch is to abide. It's to abide. And what will be the product? Fruit fruit really really important to hear what Jesus is saying here it puts an emphasis into this passage that we usually miss the role of the branches is to abide I'm going away he says I'm going away so you really need to hear this you've got to keep on abiding in me You've got to keep that relationship with me going really, really close because without me, the fruit won't be produced. The fruit of gentleness and kindness and the fruit of love and joy and peace and self-control won't be produced without abiding in me. Now, we learn later on in when he talks about the Spirit that abiding in him involves the fullness of the Holy Spirit and that wonderful mystery of God within us through the Spirit. But I, I mustn't steal um, that, uh, that sermon. <laughs> but the branches, to enable fruit to be produced, need to abide in the vine. Jesus is the vine. His followers are the branches. The Father is the gardener. And fruit is the object. It's not the means. It's the object that will be produced. Jesus tells them that their job is to stay in the vine, to remain attached, and fruit will be the product. It will naturally occur. That's what he's saying here in this passage. Fruit will be the product. The Father will prune the branches as long as they have life, and this will result in even more fruit. The outcome looked for here in this passage is a whole lot of fruit and the means to such production is remaining or abiding and pruning. The production of the fruit is the objective. So what sort of fruit? What are we talking about here? Well, it's great that we concentrated on that a bit today, earlier on, because certainly that's involved. You know, what uh, is talked about there in Galatians love that expressed that is expressed through such things as kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and peacefulness and self-control and so forth but there are some other places that we find fruit uh, talked about as well going back into the old testament in in leviticus you know laying down of the law talks about the fruit of love for god and love for neighbor uh, 
Jesus later on talks about the same thing as the greatest commandment of all, love for God and love for neighbour. Uh, if we go to the prophets, we learn a whole lot about mercy and justice and humility. So this is fruit that is produced. Mercy, justice, humility. This is what God desires, Micah tells us. Uh, in, in, in John chapter 1, we go back to that context and we find that, uh, that the fruit that uh, is produced there is grace and truth. And so certainly that's a part of the fruitfulness that God is looking for. Uh, we come to this context of John chapters 13 to 17 and, and we see love repeatedly there, love as Jesus has loved. And so, if you like, here's the key performance indicator for those anybody who's into KPIs. I'm not, but uh, I thought, you know, this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, this is the mark of the disciple, the fruitfulness that is there. The KPI, how will people know that we are his disciples by the love that we have and love that is expressed in kindness and gentleness and self-control and the way that we treat our neighbour, the way that we treat one another, the way we treat our enemies. That's an extension, isn't it, that Jesus talked about. Uh, You've heard that it was said in Matthew, uh, love your neighbour. I say to you, love your enemy. It's easy to love, love, love your friends. I say, do you love your enemy? That stretches us, doesn't it? Stretches us. I was listening on the way over on the radio to uh, a couple of um, people who were survivors of the Holocaust. And uh, some of the the, the way they were talking about about the the horrific matters there. And I I was thinking then, you know, forgiveness, it, it must be extremely difficult. Uh, to pile something like love your enemy <laughs> onto people who have been through such horrors. And um, very difficult. That's what Jesus said. Well, you know, this fruit can be produced not of our own effort, but through abiding in Christ. Because these things, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, as we looked at it, and these, these other um, aspects of fruitfulness, what those things are, are, are examples of the character of God. And that's why we go back to John chapter 1 as setting the context that this is God's character and and, and we can express God's character in the world and to one another and in the world uh, through abiding in Christ. How is it to be produced? That's why this passage is so important. It's to be produced by simply remaining remaining present, enduring. It's a very relational term. Uh, It's like Jesus is saying there are no alternatives. Even when Jesus is away, I'm going away. Even when he's away, there's no alternatives. It can only be produced by your remaining in me. Now this whole teaching on uh, remaining and abiding in Christ... Uh, is is a, an emphasis on the uh, contemplative aspect or the contemplative side of our faith, experiencing intimacy, intimacy with God. And that's why it's really important to get that because when we put the emphasis on fruitfulness, it's an emphasis on the actionary side of our faith, doing stuff, you know, which we're probably all of us are very good at, at, at that. 
Because it's an emphasis that we have of, you know, living out our faith, doing stuff. And those of you who know me, it's usually what I preach about, you know, the mission of the church. (laughs) But what this passage is saying, it's removing ourselves one step back from that. And it's saying, remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, the contemplative side of our faith is extremely important. This is what God is really like. This is what God is really looking for. He desires of his people intimacy, closeness. We really need to hear this in light of an uncertain future. So just as we wind up, just reflecting on that that teaching, um, there are two types of people... (laughs) Uh, who hear this type of teaching. There are people who are basically non-actionary and they revel in the passivity of this type of emphasis. You beauty. You know, I knew this is what I should do. Imagine raising kids and they catch on to this teaching and you say, okay, it's time to come and do the dishes. I'm just abiding. <laughs> I'm just on the couch. I'm, I'm doing some abiding right now. <laughs> Wouldn't be very much appreciated. You know, so the passivity of this hits home to some people and say, yeah, this is the sort of stuff I'm really looking for. Well, those people need to hear some of the biblical teaching on the importance of action. You know, give them James to read. But you know what? I bet you there's not many of you, if any, of that sort of person here this morning. Because, as I said a moment ago, we're actionaries. We're people who are locked into the importance of mission and the importance of doing and the importance of action, and that's that's a very good thing. But sometimes that can become a performance identity that says the number of things that I do for God or the, the number of people I win for God or the, whatever it might be becomes a performance identity and I think that I'm pretty good or I'm not pretty good because of my performance or lack of performance. Uh, we can get caught up in thinking that life is all about striving and getting it just right. And Jesus, into that paradigm, comes and says, Abide in me. Abide in me. Remain in me and the fruit will be produced. You see, we need to hear this. We need to hear this teaching. The role of the branch is to be in a position where the life of Christ flows in and through its being and the fruit is produced. This teaching that Jesus is giving here lies behind the conflict between Mary and Martha that's recorded in Luke 10 where Jesus tells Martha that she's worried and upset about many things and that Mary has chosen what is better at that particular time Mary has chosen to abide (laughs) Mary has chosen uh, to, to, to remain Mary has chosen intimacy and at that particular time Jesus says don't be hassled about stuff so much come and abide come and remain in me be relational. You see the message uh, that we need to hear this morning? Uh, this is the, the, the teaching that lies behind Jesus talking to his disciples on taking his yoke upon them. It's recorded in Matthew 11. 
He says it's easy and you'll find rest for your souls. Taking the yoke with Jesus, yeah, there's some work involved, but it's the intimacy that he's talking about here and how important that is. This is the teaching if we go back into the Old Testament in Psalm 131 where the psalmist states that he's not interested in anything too wonderful for him because he has calmed and quieted himself in the presence of God. It's a great psalm. It's only three verses. Psalm 131. Have a look at it. He says, like a weaned child within his mother's arms. A weaned child is in his mother's arms. What for? For a relationship, not for nourishment. He is weaned of the breast. He's in the mother's arms simply because he wants to be there. So this is the sort of teaching that influences all of that contemplative type of uh, emphasis. We need to be reminded of it. But one of the interesting things here in this passage in John 15 is that it's not off with the fairies. You know, it's not off with the birds. It's not saying, oh, you know, man, just hang out and, you know, meditate for, you know, meditate until eternity or whatever. It's connected to work. It's connected to fruitfulness. It's a means to fruitfulness. So contemplation, being in this deep relationship with Christ, who is the creator God, uh, having this intimacy with him, having the fullness of the spirit, which we talked about later, all of that is incredibly important and it is productive. (laughs) It's productive because the fruit will be produced from the intimacy of the relationship that we have with Christ. Folks, the, the, the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit, the fruitfulness that the prophets talked about, the fruitfulness that the law talks about of love for God and neighbor and enemy, that fruitfulness our world desperately needs. It desperately needs it. Our world is, is lost without these characteristics being lived out in our workplaces and and, and in our neighbourhoods. And the fruit that glorifies God more than anything else is what we're talking about here. Uh, These are the the KPIs that Jesus has established. And they're available. They're available for us to live out in the world around us through slowing down, sitting still, listening, listening, and enjoying the presence of God in quietness, trust, and submission. For this is what abiding is all about. Not so that we can be unproductive, but so that we can be productive for God. Could I have that uh, slide up, please? This is um, a quote from uh, a a British uh, Indian uh, Pico Iyo in his book The Art of Stillness and it will come up in just a moment Uh, there it is he said in an age of speed I began to think nothing could be more invigorating than going slow in an age of distraction nothing can feel more luxurious than paying attention and in an age of constant movement Nothing is more urgent 
than sitting still. I think he's caught the essence of what Jesus is talking about here in the first eight verses of John 15 and what's really important to God. And you see, there are some people who don't need to hear this. (laughs) Don't read it to your kids. But I reckon all of us do need to hear it, even this morning, in the midst of all of the busyness of life and the busyness of discipleship. We need to be reminded there is a time for going slow and for paying attention and for sitting still. And thank God for that.